0: I I really, uh, I struggle over this. I haven't preached it many places at all. And part of the reason for that is because uh, this message is is really my heart. And if you're a singer, you understand that there's some songs that are more difficult to sing simply because you feel that song so greatly that it's really hard to control yourself in the song because of it. That's how I feel about this message. Now, there's a second reason. And the second reason why I haven't preached in many places is because I have to read a lot of it. And that's not how I normally preach. I I don't really care for that a whole lot, but that's just the way you'll figure it out when we get into the message. Especially when I heard a story about a young man that was preaching in the country there in Alabama. It was his first time to preach, and he was excited about it, and he brought his message. And after the service, he was kind of standing out there on the porch of the church, you know, saying goodbye to folks. Uh, They weren't saying much about the message. And so one of the deacons came out and he got off with that deacon a little bit. He said, How'd you like the message? And the guy said, Well, I didn't much care for it. He said, Well, why didn't didn't you like it? He said, Well, first of all, you read it. He said, secondly, you didn't read it well. He said, thirdly, it wasn't worth reading. I I hope you don't feel that way when we're done. But if you do, I understand, okay? Turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to notice verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus And Lord, I beg you tonight for the filling of the Holy Ghost of God. Lord, my heart has been stirred by the commitments of this church, the love for souls that Christ died for. And God, I want to be a blessing tonight. I pray the Spirit of God would use us in hearts to challenge some lives tonight. And Lord, we'll thank you for all that you accomplish in it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some of you may know that the West Point Military Academy, their motto words are duty, honor, country. In 1962, General Douglas MacArthur, the man that I think was probably one of the greatest generals that this nation has ever seen, was preaching at the graduating class at West Point just two years before his death. In parts of the message that he brought, he began it this way, duty, honor honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, and what you will be. They are your rallying points to build courage when courage seems to fail, to regain faith when there seems little cause for faith, to create hope when hope seems forlorn. He said some other things, and then then he continued, In memory's eye... I see those staggering columns of the First World War bending under soggy packs on many a weary march from dripping dust to drizzling dawn, slogging ankle deep through the mire of shell-shocked roads to form grimly for the attack. He said, I do not know the dignity of their birth, but I do know the glory of their death. Always for them, duty, honor, country. Always their blood and sweat and tears as we sought the way, the light, and the truth. And then later he said, and 20 years after on the other side of the globe, again, the filth of murky foxholes, the stench of ghostly trenches, the slime of dripping dugouts, the loneliness and utter desolation of jungle trails, the bitterness of long separation from those they loved and cherished. The horror of stricken areas of war, their resolute and determined defense, their swift and sure attack, their indomitable purpose, and their complete and decisive victory, always through the bloody haze of their last reverberating shot, the vision of gaunt, ghastly men reverently following your password of duty, honor, country. He went on to say to those West Point graduates, for a century and a half, you have defended, guarded, and protected our hallowed traditions of liberty and freedom, of right and justice. Let civilian voices argue the merits and demerits of our processes of government. Your guidepost stands out like a tenfold beacon in the night. Duty, honor, country. The long gray line has never failed us. And he said, were you to do so, a million ghosts and olive drab and brown khaki and blue and gray would rise from their white crosses, thundering those magic words, duty, honor, country. He said a few more things, and then he closed with these words. The shadows are lengthening for me. The twilight is here. My days of old have vanished tone and tint. I listen vainly but with thirsty ears for the witching melody of faint bugles blowing reveille, of far drums beating the long roll. In my dreams, I hear again the crash of guns and the rattle of musketry, the strange mournful mutter of the battlefield. But in the evening of my memory, I always return to West Point, always there echoes and re-echoes in my ears. Duty, honor, country. Now, brethren, I love my country. I thank God that I've had the privilege of living in a free nation. I thank God for the heritage of our country. And that's not to say that the United States has always done right in everything But there have been a lot of people living in freedom, not just those of us in the United States, because men and women have been willing to give their all for our country. I appreciate that. I'm sorry. I can't hear the Star-Spangled Banner or God Bless America without weeping. I love my nation. And for the life of me, I can't understand someone born here who's enjoyed the benefits of this place wanting to burn the flag. I cannot understand those who are desiring to tear down our defenses. I cannot understand politicians brought up in this country with all the freedom they've had, doing their best to destroy this nation financially and militarily. I just don't get it. But let me say this. Upon being born again, I became a citizen of another country. A land that is fairer than day. A country that has a far greater heritage. A country that has a far greater king than our government. A country that has a far greater document. The eternal, infallible, inerrant word of the living God. A country that has not a long gray line that has shed its blood going to battle but a long line of those clothed in white who've went to their spiritual battle without guns and without sword really a country for whose cry would be slightly different duty honor the savior that long line clothed in white you go down to the near the beginning of the line And you find a deacon. His story is recorded for us in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Acts. This man's name is Stephen, who in his duty stood before an angry crowd who hated him. The Bible says of him that he was a man of honest report, full of wisdom, and of the Holy Ghost. And as he stood in his duty before that angry crowd, they began to pick up stones to stone him to death. And to his honor... He cried out, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And then he was ushered into the presence of his Savior. When I think of Stephen, I think of those words duty, honor, the Savior. I think of another in that long line, in that clothed with white, a man in Rome actually in 258 AD. His name was Laurentius, he was a deacon in the church that was at Rome. This is before the Catholic Church came along, of course. And he saw his pastor executed for his testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he distributed the treasures of the church among the poor of the church. He considered those to be the church treasures. The emperor called him to give an account for why he hadn't turned that money over to the government, turned the church treasures over to the government, And so he brought in the poor and the lame and those that were hurting. And he said, sir, these are the church's treasures. His story is recorded for us in Fox's book of martyrs. And the scripture says he was beaten with iron rods. He was set upon a wooden horse and had all of his limbs dislocated. He endured those tortures with strong fortitude and perseverance So he was ordered to be fastened to a large gridiron with a slow fire underneath it, that his death would be the more tedious. But his astonishing constancy during these trials and serenity of countenance under such excruciating torments gave the spectator so exalted idea of the dignity and truth of the Christian religion that many became converts. And then Fox's Book of Martyrs says... After a long time, he yielded his spirit to the Savior. And when I think of the men like Laurentius, I think of those words, duty, honor, the Savior. Now we go down that long line, clothed in white, go down through the centuries, and we find that those stories are repeated literally by the thousands of Christians who are willing to give their life for the Savior. We go down that long line clothed in white to the year 1527 and there's a young Anabaptist by the name of Michael Sattler. Because he believed that salvation was not in the church and not in baptism and not in doing penance, he believed that salvation was found in Jesus Christ alone. He was captured by the ruling religious body of the day and taken to be executed. And his story is told in the Anabaptist story by Estep. And here's how he records the death of Michael Sattler. He says, The torture, a prelude to the execution, began at the marketplace where a piece was cut from Sattler's tongue. Pieces of flesh were torn from his body twice with red-hot tongs. He was then forged to a cart. And on the way to the scene of the execution, the tongs were applied five times again. In the marketplace and at the site of the execution, still able to speak, the unshakable Sattler prayed for his persecutors. After being bound to a ladder with ropes and pushed into the fire, he admonished the people and the judges and the mayor to repent and be converted. And then he prayed, Almighty God, thou art the way and the truth, because I've not been shown to be in error. I will with thy help to this day Testify to the truth and seal it with my blood. As soon as the ropes on his wrist were burned away, he raised the forefingers of his two hands as a predetermined sign to show the people that a martyr's death was bearable. Then the assembled crowd heard coming from his seared lips, Father, I commend my spirit into thy hands. Because his wife would not recant, She was tortured eight days later and drowned. And when I think of the Sattlers, I again think of those words, duty, honor, the Savior. We go through the 1500s, 1600s, and in the 1700s, and again, thousands of people were martyred for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we come to the year 1795, and there was a shoe cobbler by the name of William Carey. We give him credit today for being the founder of modern missions for the Baptist. He would cobble shoes. That was his living. That's how he made his money. But he studied Greek, taught himself Greek by himself, taught himself Hebrew. He read the book Cook's Travels read about the teeming millions off in India and that part of the world that had no idea that Christ had died on the cross for them. He would meet together with other preachers and they would preach together and he would get up trying to lay the burden of India upon the Baptists there in England. He would have preachers get up and rebuke him. One man got up and said, Mr. Carey, sit down. If God wanted to win the heathen to Christ, he very well could do it by himself. He doesn't need you. But that didn't stop Kerry. He continued preaching, and soon other preachers began to feel the burden. But at that time, Baptists did not send out missionaries as a group like we do today. And so once they decided they were going to send somebody, they had another problem. Who would go? And so finally, Carey himself volunteered to go. But there was a slight problem, you see, whereas he was ready to go and his son Felix was going with him, his wife would not go with him. She said no. He got on the boat and he sat down and he wrote to his wife. He said, if I had all the world, I would freely give it all to have you and the dear children with me. But the sense of duty is so strong as to overpower all other considerations, I could not turn back without guilt upon my soul. As the, as the boat sailed around, or the ship sailed around the south of England, it docked for two weeks, and he had an opportunity to go back and plead with his wife one more time to go with him to India. She finally relented. Within a year of being in India, one of their children died, and a little while after that, his wife died also. And when I think of William Carey and the price he paid to open up the world to Baptist missions, I think duty, honor, the Savior. We go down that long line clothed in white. We come to a little later in the 1800s and we have a man by the name of David Livingston. Now David Livingston heard Robert Moffat preach about the teeming millions in Africa without the gospel. At that time it was basically unexplored. And Livingston, who is known to the world as an explorer and an anti-slavery man who did what he could to try to stop the trade, that was not his main reason for being there. His main reason for being there was to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. For years, he had to wander through Africa, separated from his wife, separated from his children, as they were all back in England. Finally, later on, his wife, decided to return with him after the children were grown. But within a year, she was dead. When Someone was talking about David Livingston and his great sacrifice. He sat down and he penned in his diary these words. Can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is privilege. And when I think of the men like David Livingston, Adoniram Judson, and others, Again, I hear the words duty, honor, savior. I read the book By Their Blood by James and Marty Heffley. It was written in about 1975, and it covered martyrs of the 20th century in several different parts of the world. Of course, in the first half of that 20th century, many were martyred in China. As a matter of fact, even after Mao Zedong and then And the others took over many more were martyred there and the stories are very very numerous I'm just going to share one with you. It was a missionary by the name of E.J. Cooper He had been beaten, but he survived However, his wife was beaten to death And his boy was murdered also After finding a port of safety and burial for his loved ones He wrote a letter back to his mother And here's what he wrote. The Lord has honored us by giving us fellowship in his sufferings. Three times stone, robbed of everything, even clothes. We know what hunger, thirst, nakedness, weariness are as never before. But also the sustaining grace and strength of God and his peace in a new and deeper sense than ever before. Billow after billow has gone over me. Home gone, not one memento, dear Maggie even. Penniless, wife and child gone to glory. Edith, that was his other child. Edith lying very sick with diarrhea and your son is weak and exhausted to a degree, though otherwise well. And now that you know the worst, mother, I want to tell you that the cross of Christ, that exceeding glory of the Father's love, Has brought continual comfort to my heart so that not one murmur has broken the peace of God within. And when I think of the many like E.J. Cooper, I think of those words again duty, honor, the Savior. They say that more people were martyred for Christ between the year 1900 and the year 2000 than all the years from the resurrection of Christ until the year 1900. We don't think of that very often. But just a few years ago, 2,000 Christians were martyred in the Sudan at one time. Those things still go on. Now we could recount over and over again the thousands of similar testimonies found in that long line clothed in white that's gone on before us. But I think the writer of the book of Hebrews sum, sums it up really well. If you look at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 35. He says, women received their dead, raised to life again. And then he says, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, and in dens, and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better things for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. What a heritage we have. You know, quite often, we just simply look around us at our own situation and we forget we have had it so easy why the believers that have gone on before us have been through so much and they all felt that christ was worth it as we look down that long line clothed in white there i want to see the reason for all that has taken place that christians have been willing to go through as paul writes for thy sake we are killed all the day long people have suffered for christ throughout the years but all we have to do is to go to the head of the line and there we see the son of god we see him hanging on a cross dying for our sins on calvary so that we could have eternal life and then being raised from the dead when paul would preach the gospel of jesus christ To the Corinthians he said, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He said, The love of Christ constraineth me, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, when Peter speaks up who his own self, bear our sin in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, the prophecy from long ago. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see his broken body for us so that we can have life. We see his precious blood of which the scripture says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In 1 John 1, 7, the Bible declares, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. There's nothing He doesn't cleanse us from when we come to Him. Only then do we really begin to understand the magnitude of His great love for us and how these believers who've gone on before believed every bit of that, they understood it. And so to die for him, to suffer for him, was an honor. You know, we're real good in this country. We try to make everything as easy as we can on ourselves. But when I read Luke chapter 14 and what Jesus said about being a disciple, that's not a part of what a disciple would be doing. It's not about making it easy on us. It's not about getting more toys. Some people live like they think that whoever dies with the most toys wins, and that's not it. They've missed it all. Only when we look at the one at the head of the line and we remember John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life Paul said I'm crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me oh I believe that Romans chapter 5 or 6 chapter 5 beginning in verse 6 he declares when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, and yet peradventure for, for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His death on Calvary was for us. His resurrection was so we could be justified before him. Romans 4, 25, he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our Justification. And that salvation is a free gift offered through his precious son. For the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's not just a nice sentiment. That's reality. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Savior paid my sin debt and gave to this worthless sinner, not just forgiveness and not just eternal life, but he's given me a relationship with himself. You see, only when we go to the head of the line and see what Christ went through for us, what was behind it all for him coming to save sinners, as Paul would write, only then can we begin to understand The sacrifice of that long line clothed in white. And we hear our commander, our savior, our lord, our head, our king. We hear him say, as my father has sent me, so send I you. Can we do any less? He proclaimed, our our general proclaimed to us, go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You realize you can't preach to the wrong person. You can't give the gospel. You say, What if they're already saved? Man, if they're already saved, they'll appreciate you cared for their soul. Don't worry about that. Well, they hit me. They did more than that to Stephen, did more than that to Michael Sattler. We could go down through history, and that story is repeated over and over again. Thank God for his sacrifice for us. And again, I think of the words duty, honor savior how important now you'll forgive me for a moment if i don't understand how god's people can sit at home on sunday night when the assembly is assembling to hear the word of god now i appreciate live stream we live stream too but i'm gonna tell you something live stream is church you don't assemble on live stream Because you can't do what the assembly's supposed to do. The Bible says not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. I'm sorry. When we're not assembling, we can't exhort one another. We exhort one another when we get together. Now, for the folks that can't get here, I understand it. Folks can't get to my church. I understand they're sick. I don't want them coming and getting everyone else sick. I get all of that. But there are a whole lot of folks that are just tired, so they stay at the house. That's not right. I tell them, I say, folks, come. You fall asleep. If I can't keep you awake, that's on me. But I said, if you fall asleep, don't worry. We won't rob you. We'll just let you sleep. That's okay. Pardon me if I don't understand how a child of God can be more faithful to a baseball team or a softball team. Or a football team than they are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ I don't get it I don't understand how they can refuse to witness for the Savior when we really have such a clear command we're to go that's the command I don't understand how believers can be so unforgiving of one another when the world is looking for some example of forgiveness. And if it can't come from the people who've been forgiven, what are they going to do? We carry such bitterness. The Bible says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from, uh, from among you. Listen, we are to forgive one another even as God is for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. Well, preacher, I don't believe they deserve it. Well, you didn't deserve it either. You'll forgive me if I don't understand how Christians can sit around complaining about standards. I just don't get it. When the scripture is very plain, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and justly in this present day. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us we're to be separate. Makes me wonder if somebody knows anything about the grace of God. I don't understand how Christian school graduates plan their whole lives around making money instead of serving Jesus. Serving Jesus ought to be the goal for every believer. And that's not to say everybody has to be in full-time service. But I do believe every Christian is to be a full-time Christian. You'll forgive me, please, if I don't understand preachers quitting the ministry because they were treated badly. How was he treated? Thank God he didn't quit. You go down through church age, Christians have been treated badly throughout the church age. Yeah, but another Christian hurt me. Okay, did Jesus? Stay faithful to him. We don't stop serving him because somebody treats me unjustly. By the way, you'll remember when Shimei came out cursing David. And, of course, that that son of Zeruiah came to David and said, let me go over and take that dead dog's head off. David said, what am I to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? And then he basically said this, What if God told him to curse me? Should I kill him for doing what God told him to do? I appreciate David's thought on that. He was basically saying, maybe God decided I needed a good (laughs) cussing. Sometimes we get so high and mighty. You know, you can tell when we got a lot of false spirituality about us, when we get so put out that someone didn't respect us like we should have been respected. I don't know what got me going on that. That wasn't even in my notes, but that's pretty good. I tell you, I can't understand. I I look down through the the history of the church, and especially the Baptists, I can't understand a Baptist preacher taking Baptists off the sign. I don't get that at all. I'm not ashamed of it. Baptists have been faithful to preaching the gospel, standing for the word of God. Number one Baptist distinctive is we believe the Bible is the inspired and errant infallible word of the living God and the final rule of faith and practice. I'm not ashamed of that. But I tell you what, I don't understand how so many preachers can be turning Baptist churches into Calvinist pits. I'd like to preach on that for a while. Let me just say this. Anybody that has to keep changing the words of the Bible like God didn't know them, I already know there's something wrong with them. When they say whosoever doesn't mean whosoever, it means whosoever the elect. When they say the world doesn't mean the world, it means the world of the elect. When it says he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, any doesn't mean any, it means any of the elect. All doesn't mean all, it means all of the elect. God knew all those words beforehand. If he wanted them in there, he'd have put them in there. He didn't put them in there. I'm just going to stand on the word of God. I don't understand how so many professing believers can get on the internet and run down every good, Bible-believing, soul-winning church. They've got nothing else to do with their life but do the work of the devil. The work of the devil. He is the accuser of the brethren. And if you've got that slop on your social media sites, God help your soul, you need to hit an altar and get right with God. You say, but they're not what they ought to be. Well, you're not either. I don't know if you realize this or not, but every Baptist church has flesh in it. And if you wanna know what the works of the flesh is, we wanna say, well, independent Baptists are this way, and the things they mention are things every group has because every group has flesh. They don't understand the Bible at all. I don't know anybody that's perfect all the time. That's why we have to get right. By the way, it's one of the reasons we give an invitation. And I also don't understand why more people aren't surrendering to the ministry. I don't get it. I look down that long line clothed in white, seen all these people who recognized all that Christ did for them, I look at the head of the line. I see the Savior's bleeding form. Knowing that his death was for me. His life was for me. Can I do any less than live for him? William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. When that organization was all about that. Being an army taking salvation to multitudes. He stood before the Queen of England. And the Queen of England asked him this question. What is the secret of your ministry? How is it that others are so pale and pallid and powerless, so weak that you're so mighty? Booth had tears streaming down his face. And he said, Your Majesty, I guess it's because God has all there is of me. And I wonder, should he have any less of me? Should he have any less of you? Are you letting God have all of you duty, honor, the Savior?